right, all right. This is John Lawrence with Anesthesia Guidebook, and this is part three of the Top Drawer Rundown. This three-part series covers 39 of the most common IV anesthesia medications that are usually found in the top drawers of anesthesia cards in the United States. In part one, we covered common induction medications, opioids, and paralytics. In part two, we talked about paralytic reversal agents and medications that are used to manipulate heart rate and blood pressure. And in this episode, part three, we'll cover a bit of a hodgepodge of medications that round out most anesthesia carts in the U.S., plus common OB meds. Here's the list. Heparin, naloxone, albuterol, dexamethasone, famotidine, ondansetron, haloperidol, ferrosamide, metoclopramide, ketorolac, oxytocin, methyl ergonavine, and carboprost. For this series, I'm joined by Michael Milnicek, a CRNA with a deep interest in pharmacology. Michael completed his anesthesia training at the University of Scranton with a master's in nursing in December of 2018. He studied succinylcholine during graduate school, and we actually recorded an hour-long podcast just on that one medication back in episode three of Anesthesia Guidebook. I'm very grateful for Michael's time and energy that he gave to produce this series, and hopefully you've enjoyed the conversation that we've had on all of these medications. Remember that your practice is your own, and anything you hear on social media should be cross-checked with published textbooks, up-to-date, or peer-reviewed literature. It's a bit reckless to take something you hear on social media, including this podcast, and immediately implement it in your own practice without first cross-referencing published literature. Reading is a key aspect of digging deep and taking up the journey towards mastering your craft. You're on a path to becoming an expert anesthesia provider. We're here to help you on that journey, but we can only take you so far. True mastery comes from what you do with the tools at your disposal. I hope Anesthesia Guidebook earns your trust as a key resource, but I'll always encourage you to cross-check what we talk about here with peer-reviewed published literature. To do anything less would undermine our integrity and would be a disservice to you. Now, I first released this series in September of 2019 on the podcast From the Head of the Bed. With bringing this series to Anesthesia Guidebook, I created a new PDF outline for all the medications that we've talked about and posted that free on the website. I created the outline in a flashcard style with space provided for you to write down all of the core information for each medication. Anesthesia residents have asked me since 2019 if I could provide a transcript of this series. While that would save you a lot of work, I think you'll actually learn the medications better if you write the information down yourself. So the flashcards are just an outline, and that's intentional. Print them out on cardstock and fill in the information as you listen to the shows and reference your books. Color coordinate the cards and use the back of the cards for any additional information that you want to write down. Hopefully you'll find the outline useful. And with that, let's jump in with Michael, who will lead us off with heparin. All right, so here we go. We're going to talk about heparin. Uh, Heparin, I'm sure all of us have given some time in our uh, practice, is classified as an anticoagulant. So its method of action is actually quite interesting. It it makes antithrombin-3 very potent, and I believe it's, it's a really high number of how much more potent it makes this antithrombin to make it work. So the dosing of heparin for an adult is completely dependent on the procedure and the individual. So for this podcast, we're just going to be doing emergency bypass dosing. And so usually for if we're going to do cardiac bypass, 
Uh, it's going to be 300 units per kilogram as the average to start it. And dosaging can go all the way up to 500 units per kilogram. And uh, usually this dose is clarified with the surgeon and perfusionist. Um, an interesting thing, though, with uh, with dosing is that you can give as much heparin as you want, but if the patient doesn't have enough antithrombin-3 in their system, um, it's not going to make any difference in the anticoagulation uh, effects. So it's all dependent upon their stores of antithrombin-3 circulating. So for the onset of heparin, we usually like to wait three minutes. That seems to be the magic number of how long before taking an activated clotting timer, also known as ACT, to measure the effectiveness of heparin. The duration of heparin is about one to two hours, and uh, it's metabolized primarily by the liver and excreted by the kidneys. The reason we use heparin is for starting bypass when we are doing anesthesia. Also, it's used to prevent DVTs and PEs or any other indication requiring anticoagulation. Contraindications for heparin include use for patients with hemophilia, thrombocytopenia, um, if there's already acute bleeding going on or peptic ulcers are already present, esophagitis, or any really reason you can think of that bleeding would be a serious issue in this patient. Another thing to think about for side effects is, like we said, very high risk of bleeding. It can bind to calcium, which can lead to acute hypotension if you push it fast. Uh, pregnancy, it seems to be safe to use during pregnancy if it is required. Be aware that heparin use and their actual anesthesia use. So just something to be precautious of is if they're already on a heparin and then they have an epidural, if you're planning to do a spinal, to really make sure that's worn off. Um, if you need to reverse heparin, then we use a drug called protamine, and protamine uh, neutralizes heparin and circulation. And uh, the dosage is usually one milligram of protamine for every 100 units of heparin. But this is all based on how long it's been since the last heparin dose. And usually the uh, perfusionist or the uh, surgeon will come up with a dosage to give. Uh, anything else you can think of, John, for heparin? No, I, th I think that's great. I think you hit all the, the highlights. Um, I think it's important to remember that, uh, yeah, heparin can drop your blood pressure if you push it super fast to the binding of calcium. And, you know, this is... It's a medication that involves close communication with the surgeons. So often you're mm -hmm. uh, monitoring ACT times to redose heparin. And so it can be a team effort in terms of monitoring the level of anticoagulation that we're looking for in patients. Um, so it's something to be mm -hmm. careful with. And then obviously it's, it's super important to, um, you know, we're not talking about protamine specifically in this podcast, but it's obviously important to have the right dose and to give that at the right time. Yeah. You know, protamine can have um, severe consequences if you reverse the heparin before the surgical team is ready for you to do that. Correct. So uh, speaking of reversing stuff, um, the next medication that we're going to talk about is naloxone or commonly referred to as Narcan. And this is an opioid antagonist, which binds to mu, kappa, and delta receptors to competitively attach and inhibit receptor use by opioids, of course. So the dose for this is 0 0.1 to 0 0.2 milligrams titrated to response. The pediatric dose is 5 to 10 mics per kilogram every 2 to 3 minutes, again, titrated to response. So pharmacodynamics and kinetics involve an onset of 1 to 2 minutes, a duration of 1 to 4 hours, which is important because as we've discussed in part one of our podcast, 
some of the opioids that we give have a longer duration of action than Narcan. So you can see Narcan wear off in PACU or perhaps even more dangerously if you've given a lot of morphine or Dilaudid, you know, maybe you reverse with Narcan, the patient makes it through PACU effectively, and then they get delivered to the floor, the Narcan wears off, and then you get, you know, renewed sedation and respiratory depression from the prolonged duration of action of the opioid. So it's, uh, be very careful when you're using this as an opioid reversal that you're actually monitoring the patient um, for the total duration of action of the opioids that you're trying to reverse. It seems like common sense, but it's something to keep in mind. So it, this is metabolized by the liver and excreted by the bile and urine. Obviously, the indication is for opioid reversal. You know, there's no strong contraindications, precautions and side effects. So obviously, you know, be careful using this with patients with cardiac disease. Uh, can cause tachycardia, hypertension, uh, can cause hypotension, arrhythmias, pulmonary edema, nausea, vomiting. It is safe to use for pregnant women generally, but it's one of those risk versus benefit things as all risk have not been ruled out. And remember, titrate this slowly. So the patient needs to be carefully monitored. This is, you know, if you have any ER or pre-hospital experience, obviously Narcan is a, is a life-saving medication. In many states, this has been approved for over-the-counter use. So anyone can go to a drugstore and buy it to reverse and use on friends or, or members of the community that may have overdosed on opioids. For someone who's a chronic opioid user, for whatever reason, recreational use or chronic pain use, you know, binding those opioid receptors to where they have no action, to where the opioids have no action, can put someone into an extreme state of acute pain. So it is important mm -hmm. to, again, titrate Narcan to the response that you're looking for, which is return of adequate ventilation. And perhaps just after that, return of a degree of consciousness and wakefulness. Uh, you don't necessarily need to take away all of their, you know, this is not something that you, that you would give an overwhelming reversal dose to and, you know, wait for the outcome. So you want to titrate to effect. I can remember an anecdotal story of some friends in the ER that would actually put Narcan into a nebulizer. And so as a patient who is breathing very slowly from an opioid overdose, you know, someone who's not like in an, in an acutely dangerous situation, they would nebulize Narcan. And then as someone got just enough awake to be annoyed with the face mask, they would knock the nebulizer off and they would be in the sweet spot of, uh, they're breathing effectively, but they're not too awake. They're not too reverse from their opioids. So, uh, but that's the rundown on Narcan. Anything else you want to add? Yeah. I'm just, I'm just thinking of my personal experience. I've only used Narcan once in my practice. And, uh, the only time I really used it is it was just a definite overdose of opioids. When it was an LMA case, patient never breathed, and it was a lot shorter than expected. And so it's either no breathing or breathing less than three times a minute or giving a little Narcan because it's going to be a long time before it gets out of their system. And uh, some people are just much more sensitive than you thought. And so it happens to all of us. Um, and you definitely want to make sure you let PACU know that you used it so that they're aware not to keep giving more opioids since it may not work for them if they start developing pain. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a great drug. It has its place to, to rescue. Yeah. It's got its place. I think I always joke that it's kind of one of those medications that you're a little ashamed that you have to pull out and give, uh, you know, in, mm -hmm. in the anesthesia world, obviously, because it's usually us who gave the opioids that we then have to take away. 
And we're trying, yeah. we're trying to get our patients to wake up comfortable and, and like, and breathing in PACU. So again, judicious titration, slow titration, you know, if you've ruled out all other causes and you feel like it's your opioids, that is a reason for someone not waking up or not breathing effectively at the end of the case, you might have to give it and that's okay. That's why it's in the top drawer. Um, but, uh, yeah, oftentimes learning how to use the opioids a little bit, a little bit better or anticipating case duration, as you mentioned, can help you avoid yeah. having to give Narcan. Exactly. Which leads us now to a different topic. Uh, our next drug is albuterol sulfate, yeah. also known as Proventil or Ventolin. I'm sure a lot of you have heard of this drug. It's a beta-2 adrenergic agonist, sympathomimetic, also a class of a bronchodilator. So it works by directly stimulating beta-2 receptors. And so a nice way to remember your receptors is you have beta-1 and beta-2. So you have one heart and two lungs, and that's how you know which one stimulates which. So because it's a direct beta-2 stimulator, you're going to have bronchodilation to allow adequate breathing. So dosing for this, it comes in a, an inhaler form, so it's a meter dose per squeeze. And uh, usually you want to do two inhalations, one to five minutes apart, and you can repeat it every four to six hours. So each puff actually gives an exact dosage of 90 mics of albuterol. And pediatrics, the same dosing. Pharmacodynamics and kinetics, its onset is about five to 15 minutes, and it peaks in 0.5 to two hours. And uh, the duration is three to six hours. Hence why we repeat the doses every four to six hours because the duration is quite long of almost six hours. Metabolism and excretion, it's metabolized by the liver, excreted by the kidneys. So its use is really to treat any really type of bronchoconstriction. So asthma uh, would be the most classic example. Or if there's COPD and there's difficulty ventilating a patient or the patient's having difficulty which seems to be from a bronchoconstrictive pathology, then you can use the rescue inhaler to try to treat it. Uh, contraindications really is no true contraindication. There are side effects associated with albuterol. So you want to use caution uh, in patients with vascular disease, chronic vascular diseases, uh, hypertension, hyperthyroid patients. And you also want to watch the glucose levels because beta receptors do increase your glucose levels. And um, pregnancy, the safety is not truly established. So it's another one of those things where the benefit outweighs the risk. And uh, some notes about it is tolerance can develop over time. So if someone's have been using their inhaler nonstop and then you need to use it again, don't be surprised if you're using it intraoperatively and it's not really causing an effect uh, that you desire. Um, and another thing is someone's on beta blockers, it can interfere with your albuterol, that dosing, and that it's competing with each other. So you have a beta blocker and then you have a beta agonist. So an agonist and antagonist all and together, and it may not work in those who are beta blocked. So uh, something else to consider. Anything else you can think of, John, for albuterol? No, I think that's a great rundown, man. Awesome. Yeah, cool. Yeah. So next up is uh, dexamethasone or decadron. So this is a anti-inflammatory corticosteroid Specifically, the subclass is glucocorticoid, and the mechanism of action of dexamethasone is that and it inhibits phospholipase A2, which is uh, at the start of the inflammatory response cascade. 
the mechanism of action in preventing postoperative nausea vomiting, which is often why we're giving this, uh, it's one of the main reasons why we give this perioperatively, it's not well established. So one article that I want to point folks to is by uh, Jenna Asante. She was a co-student of mine at Western Carolina University. She published a comprehensive lit review on the perioperative use of dexamethasone in the AANA journal back in 2015, which I'll link to in, in the show notes. In her article, she says that the proposed mechanisms of action of dexamethasone include the activation of glucocorticoid receptors in the medulla, inhibition of central production of prostaglandins, or inhibition of the release of endogenous opioids, but it's not been fully established for PONV. The typical dose for PONV is adults 4 to 10 milligrams, PDs 150 mics per kilogram, or 0.15 milligrams per kilogram, up to a max dose of 8 milligrams. The pharmacodynamics and kinetics include an onset time of 15 to 30 minutes, a duration of 36 to 54 hours, if you're counting, a half-life of one to five hours, and it is hepatically metabolized and excreted in the urine. The indications for dexamethasone are postoperative nausea vomiting, decreasing intracranial pressure, and also decreasing postoperative pain as a part of a opioid-free or opioid-sparing analgesia plan. Contraindications include hypersensitivity, of course, if someone's allergic to it, or interestingly, systemic fungal infections. Precautions include, you know, there, there are actually very few precautions for a single perioperative dose. There are numerous precautions and things to think about with high-dose decadron use, particularly high-dose and chronic decadron use. So prolonged use may lead to suppression of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal or HPA axis, which may lead uh, to an adrenal crisis. Uh, perineal irritation can occur if dexamethasone is pushed fast on an awake patient. This has been described as someone's groin feels like it's on fire uh, if this is pushed on an awake patient. So even though you may be trying to do your best to prevent postoperative nausea vomiting, uh, wait till the patient is, is asleep, or if you are going to give this for someone who's super nauseous in the pre-op area, be sure to push it very slow. Decadron may exacerbate psychiatric conditions. It is a pregnancy risk factor of C, which means the risk cannot be ruled out. And some considerations on it, and again, this is something that Jenna Asante jumped into in her article in the AANA journal, is that Decadron causes a transient rise in blood glucose for both diabetic and non-diabetic patients, but this has not been shown to lead to any negative perioperative outcomes. So one of the things that is important to remember with this transient rise in blood glucose is that even though you might see a bump in someone's blood glucose, uh, including a diabetic patient, there's been no negative effects that that has come out in the literature, and it's usually managed with just routine perioperative dosing of insulin protocols. So you'll be able to manage someone from the transient bump in a blood glucose for a diabetic patient and, and including a non-diabetic patient. Additionally, there's no evidence that a single dose of dexamethasone given perioperatively increases the risk of surgical site infection. So I know surgeons are obviously, and anesthesia providers should be too, very concerned about this, but there's been no evidence that a, that a one-time dose of this steroid leads to an increase in surgical side infection. And then lastly, dexamethasone can play a role in opioid-free anesthesia and has been shown uh, to decrease post-operative pain and opioid consumption through its anti-inflammatory effects. So 
in many ways, a one-time dose of dexamethasone can be very helpful for our patients uh, in terms of preventing postoperative nausea vomiting and also decreasing postoperative pain. Anything you want to jump in there with, Michael? Uh, no, it's uh, covered everything. Mainly used for, like you said, postoperative pain, uh, preventing nausea. It's definitely a good multimodal to use in both nausea and pain prevention. So it definitely has its place. It's used very commonly. Um, and like you said, it's really hard to see how one dose can really cause any, really any measurable negative side effects. So it's really, it's a great drug. Yeah. I think it, I think it comes back to risk versus benefit again, which is an analysis that we do on so many things that we do. The benefit of a one of a single dose for post-op nausea vomiting and its ability to decrease post-operative pain and opioid consumption I think oftentimes outweighs uh, the risk of a transient increase in blood glucose. Uh, and again, there's been no evidence that that one-time dose increases surgical side infection. So, so I think there's a lot of benefits for minimal risk. Yeah. And one more thing I wanted to mention is uh, Decadron is solely a glucocorticoid. It has no mineral corticoid uh, activity. So it's, it's just something to keep in mind, especially if you, steroids, it's not at all. It's very potent in the anti-inflammatory aspect of steroid activity. Yeah, it's incredibly potent, uh, which is remarkable. Yeah. Um, but more on that in another podcast. So uh, so what's up next? All right, next up is famotidine. Trade name is Pepsin. It's a classification of a histamine H2 antagonist. The method of action is that it inhibits histamine at the H2 receptor in gastric parietal cells, which leads to less gastric acid production. For adult dosing, it's 20 milligrams IV. For pediatrics, uh, we're looking at 0.25, 0.25 milligrams per kilogram every 12 hours. The onset is about one hour, so it peaks in about one to three hours. Uh, it's considered, if using for aspiration prophylaxis, its duration is about 10 to 12 hours long. So one IV dose will give you 10 to 12 hours of effectiveness. And its half-life can be two and a half to three and a half hours, but it's prolonged with renal impairment. Metabolism uh, and excretion is a 30, 35% hepatic first-pass metabolism, and it's excreted renally. So really why we use it is for aspiration prophylaxis, but this is off-label. And it's also very useful for stress ulcer prophylaxis due to the decreased acidity in the uh, stomach. And contraindications is just known hypersensitivities. So because it's a histamine antagonist, it will prolong the QT interval, especially in patients uh, with severe renal impairment. And it may cause some confusion, delirium in the elderly. It does cross the placenta and it does go into breast milk, but it seems safe to use for aspiration prophylaxis prior to a C-section. So just some things to think about uh, when I think about giving Pepsid is you have to think about how long does it take to really kick in? Are you really going to benefit with what it's supposed to do? Uh, another thing I think about too when I give Pepsid is you are decreasing the acidity in the stomach and the whole purpose of acidity in the stomach is to actually kill pathogens. So there is somewhat uh, of an increase in developing some kind of infection due to the decreased acidity. So you really have to watch out and make sure that the benefits outweigh the risks when you give Pepsin. Uh, anything else you can think of, John? No, I think you nailed it, man. That's a good rundown. 
I think All right, next up. Yeah, I think next up is uh, is Ondansetron or Zofran. So this is another antiemetic. It is a mechanism of action. It's a selective 5-HT3 receptor antagonist, and it blocks serotonin. So serotonin is 5-HT. There are seven types, and 5-HT3 is just one of them. So it acts both peripherally and on the vagal nerve terminals and centrally in the chemoreceptive trigger zone. The classic dose of Zofran is 4 to 8 milligrams Q8 hours, or 0.15 milligrams per kilogram with a max of 16 milligrams. The pharmacodynamics and kinetics of Zofran is an onset time of 30 minutes and a half-life of around three to six hours. It is uh, hepatically metabolized and renally cleared. The indications for Zofran are post-opnage vomiting, which I think is what most people are familiar with, but it is also useful in carcinoid syndrome and amniotic fluid embolus, which I'll talk more about here momentarily. The contraindications are, of course, hypersensitivity and then concomitant administration with apomorphine or apokin, which is a dopaminergic agonist used in the treatment of Parkinson's disease and erectile dysfunction. So it would be typically a home medication that a patient would be on. Precautions with Zofran are that it can uh, lead to QT prolongation and also serotonin syndrome. So serotonin syndrome, you're at particular risk for getting that if you're giving agents that can, you know, multiple or more than one agent that can lead to serotonin syndrome. So other medications that would be implicated in that would be SSRIs, MAOIs, uh, mirtazapine, fentanyl, interestingly, lithium, tramadol, and methylene blue. So there are some case reports of people who come in on antidepressants, including SSRIs and MAOIs. And then during a case, uh, you know, they get fentanyl, Zofran, they might get methylene blue for some reason. And the combination of all of those things puts them into a serotonin syndrome, which as folks may remember is characterized by mental status changes, autonomic hyperreactivity, and then neuromuscular changes like tremor, rigidity, and myoclonus hyperreflexia, and so on. So something to just keep in the back of your mind that, you know, I think so often we just give Zofran and we don't think that there's really any negative effects, uh, but remember QT prolongation and serotonin syndrome. Hey y'all, John here. Stay tuned to the podcast because I've got a show that will be coming out in the next few weeks on serotonin syndrome that will include a few case studies and a whole rundown on the syndrome. Serotonin syndrome is fascinating, and I think you'll really enjoy hearing the case studies that are coming up. In the time being, pay attention to your patient's pre-op medications, especially serotonergic meds like SSRIs, and use caution if you're thinking about using phenylpapyridine opioids like fentanyl and remifentanil along with ondansetron. All right, back to the rundown. The pregnancy risk factor for this is B, so there's no evidence of risk. It's generally considered safe. And a couple of other notes um, that I want to just touch on briefly, uh, going back to the indications for carcinoid syndrome and amniotic fluid embolus, I just want to speak to those real briefly. So uh, for severe refractive carcinoid syndrome, Zofran can be useful. So that is caused by neuroendocrine tumors of the lungs, intestines, and liver, which secrete serotonin. Typically, it's from some sort of... Uh, metastasized liver tumor that someone may um, have carcinoid syndrome. So 
these tumors secrete serotonin, histamine, tachykinins, along with some other agents. Carcinoid syndrome can be characterized by cutaneous flushing, labile BP, diarrhea, bronchospasm, cardiomyopathy. And so uh, people reach for, for Zofran in this instance when uh, they're really wanting to, to deal with symptomatic management with carcinoid syndrome. So particularly and most commonly, it's uh, for management of diarrhea. So it's similar dosing to what you would typically give for post-op nausea vomiting. So four to eight milligrams Q8 hours. And also it's just a bonus feature for our students out there that are prepping for boards. Uh, Zofran is a treatment for carcinoid syndrome and so is octreotide, which is a somatostatin analog that binds to somatostatin receptors on the tumor cells that secrete these various uh, things like serotonin and it prevents the release of serotonin and other vasoactive substances. So octreotide, Zofran, carcinoid syndrome treatments. And then the last thing I want to mention about Zofran briefly is a very fascinating thing that I think has emerged in the literature just in the last few years, and that's its efficacy in managing amniotic fluid embolus. So, well, I'll put a link in the show notes to an article that provides a dramatic case report from, I believe it was... uh, potentially a a patient who came in at like 38 weeks and went for a stat C-section. And then uh, as soon as the baby was out, she developed um, an acute amniotic fluid embolus that was successfully managed with a therapy that's referred to as AOK, which includes atropine, ondansetron, and ketorolac. So briefly, uh, since we're talking about all of these medications on this top drawer rundown, I want to uh, just talk real briefly about how these work. So it's interesting. Classically, amniotic fluid embolus is diagnosed as as a mechanical obstruction, but there's also like an electrochemical cascade that happens uh, with an amniotic fluid embolus. So one pathway is a vagal reflex, which atropine is used for. And then this fluid embolism also leads to an inflammatory mediator release that includes serotonin, uh, which leads to pulmonary vasoconstriction. There's a whole cascade that I won't get into on the podcast. Folks should really go in and check out the case report, which breaks down both in words and also graphs and charts, the whole chemical cascade that happens. But essentially, atropine helps with a vagal response. And then Zofran and Ketorolac both come in in terms of their anti-serotonin effects with Zofran and the anti-thromboxane effects of Ketorolac. And I think just briefly to mention for the sake that some people may remember what they hear in the podcast, folks typically give eight milligrams of Zofran, 30 milligrams of Tordal, and one milligram of atropine. And that's like in an acute rapid push, you know, you're in acute cardiovascular collapse from amniotic fluid embolus, and you would employ an AOK therapy of atropine on Dancitron and Ketorolac uh, to rescue that person and to restore left ventricular function in forward flow. So very interesting stuff when you look at amniotic fluid embolus and also carcinoid syndrome with Zofran. Who knew it's not just for post-op nausea vomiting? Mm-hmm. Yep, it does have a, a great place. Uh, we, I think, as you said before, with as anesthesia providers, we kind of just give it, it's becoming so mindless as we give it. So, And there's still so much that we should still think about uh, before we give a drug such as Zofran. It seems to be so simple, and it has this great place, like you said, an AOK. I know that AOK is uh, making headway down here as well, and where I practice, and it really seems to be taking off. So I'm sure a lot of you will hear about it, or you probably already have heard about it. Um, and another thing too, I wanted to mention that Odanzatron also does, 
is it actually they found that there's a reflex when a spinal is administered for a C-section or for a knee or hip replacement. The basal Jarrett's reflex is a, a reflex that occurs because of the pooling of the blood down to usually your lower legs, and it causes your heart rate and your blood pressure to decrease. Um, usually, we treat it with our vasopressors or, or anything else that brings it back up. And they found that giving Zofran five minutes or more before you do a spinal made a statistically significant prevention and having to treat the heart rate or the blood pressure and more so in pregnant patients who receive the spinal. And uh, I can share that uh, article with you guys as well. Oh yeah, that'd be great. Um, you can see it was from a meta-analysis on giving just Zofran and that's it. All right. I want to jump in here again. So what Michael just mentioned about on Dance and Chomp preventing spinal-induced hypotension is something that I actually just put out a podcast on with Jenny Lee, who at the time was a SRNA at the University at Buffalo. It's episode 16 of Anesthesia Guidebook. So go check that out if you haven't already. All right, let's get back to the rundown. All right. So next drug is Haloperidol, also known as Haldol for trade name. It's a first-generation antipsychotic. So you may be wondering why this is in a top drawer drug. So this is a butophenone antipsychotic that non-selectively blocks postsynaptic dopaminergic D2 receptors in the brain. So the usual dosing is 0.5 to 2 milligrams IV for the prevention of postoperative nausea and vomiting. And for PD, it's not commonly given. So onset is about 3 to 20 minutes, duration is 3 to 24 hours, and has a half-life of 14 to 26 hours. It's metabolized by the liver and renally excreted. So the main reason we use it in anesthesia, even though this is off-label, is for post-operative nausea and vomiting prevention or treatment. And not to get into detail too much, but there's another drug known as droperidol, um, and that used to be the best drug to prevent nausea and vomiting or to treat it as a rescue. But because of uh, black box warnings, it's been a lot less common to use lately. And so Haldol works in a very similar way. So it seems to be a great antiemetic when needed. Contraindications though, is that it uh, can, it, if anyone has a hypersensitivity to it, Parkinson's disease, severe CNS, depression, coma, or dementia. Uh, there is a box warning that mortality increases in the elderly patients with dementia-related psychosis. So definitely want to be careful to use it on anyone who is fragile and elderly. And some precautions or side effects to watch out for is, like we said, avoid in patients over 65 years of age. They do have an increased risk of having a cerebral vascular accident or stroke, cognitive dysfunction and mortality. Antipsychotics uh, may exacerbate the syndromes of uh, inappropriate antidiuretic hormone secretion, CYADH, or hyponatremia. It can prolong the QT interval. Anticholinergic effects such as constipation, blurred vision, dry mouth, urinary retention, CNS depression. There's tons of side effects here that you would have to really look at, but a lot of it has to do with affecting the brain. And so if you feel like that there's already some cognitive issues going on, you want to be real careful using Haldol. Another thing is for pregnancy, uh, you should avoid it uh, in pregnant women or if they're breastfeeding because it does cross the blood-brain barrier. Uh, anything else you think of, John, for Haldol? No, I, I think that's it. I, I like what you said, that it's it's kind of a 
you know, it, it's something to reach for after you've given um, some other antiemetics. And, and there are a lot of side effects uh, to think about with Haldol. So I think many CRNAs are probably familiar with using Haldol as an antipsychotic in the ICUs. So yeah, it's got a long list of precautions and side effects. So uh, be careful with its use, but it can be a very effective medication to give uh, for post-op nausea vomiting in conjunction with other medications. Cool. So next up is furosemide or Lasix. So this is commonly the only diuretic that we'll find uh, in the top drawer of an anesthesia machine. It's considered an antihypertensive and a loop diuretic. Uh, the mechanism of action of furosemide specifically is that it inhibits reabsorption of sodium and chloride in the ascending loop of Henle and the proximal and distal renal tubules. The dose is typically the reason that we're giving this in the anesthesia land is for acute pulmonary edema, which would be 40 milligrams or otherwise per surgeon preference. So sometimes surgeons have worked on the uterus or uh, some other renal system or they're concerned they've been working somewhere else and they want to get some sort of a, an acute stimulation of urine production. And so they'll ask you to give 10 milligrams, 20 milligrams of furosemide just to make sure that there's not some sort of obstructive pathway that they have inadvertently created during the surgery. So uh, the pharmacokinetics and dynamics of this include an onset that is about five minutes IV when it's given IV. The peak is 30 minutes. The duration of action is two hours when given IV. The half-life is 30 minutes to two hours. This is minimally metabolized by the liver, and of course, it's renally excreted. Indications would be acute pulmonary edema or stimulation of urine production per a surgeon request. Contraindications are hypersensitivity, and the precautions are numerous, uh, which most have to do with reasons that you would not want a fluid and electrolyte imbalance. So there is a U.S. boxed warning because it is a potent diuretic that can lead to fluid and electrolyte loss hyperuricemia, so there's a risk of gout when giving furosemide, nephrotoxicity. Interestingly, and this is also a quiz question, test question, I don't know, maybe even board question, autotoxicity with furosemide administration, and that's usually linked to rapid IV administration. So giving furosemide slowly can often prevent autotoxicity. Other things that can uh, put you at risk for that would be severe renal impairment, excessive doses of furosemide, and hypoproteinemia all put you at risk for autotoxicity. Photosensitivity is another precaution, and sulfonamide or sulfa allergies, uh, there is a potential cross-reactivity with uh, sulfonamides. Furosemide does cross the placenta, and it is present in breast milk. However, it is used to treat heart failure in pregnant women. It may suppress lactation and lead to an increased birth weight, so it's not without risk. Any other thoughts on furosemide that you want to throw out there? No, it sounds about right. I, it's very rarely that we'll give it, but it's usually when the surgeon requests it or needs. I most commonly notice that they want it when they need to have the patient pee for a cystoscopy or something to, to evaluate. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah you covered it all. Yeah, great. All right, what's next? All right, next up is methoclopramide, also known as Reglan for its trade name. And its class is it's an antiemetic, gastrointestinal agent, prokinetic, and serotonin 5-HT4 receptor agonist. So the method of action is that it blocks dopamine receptors and serotonin receptors in the chemoreceptor trigger zone, enhances the response to acetylcholine in the upper GI tract, 
So in effect, it causes enhanced motility, increases lower esophageal sphincter tone, so it ex- accelerates the gastric emptying. Um, for dosing for adults, it's 10 milligrams over one to two minutes. Some recommend 25 to 50 milligrams. Its onset is about one to three minutes IV, and it peaks in one to three hours. Uh, duration is about one to two hours, depending how long it takes for the peak to occur. Half-life is about five to six hours. And uh, metabolism is by the liver and excreted by the kidneys. Reason we give it is anytime you can think about why we would want to empty out the stomach chemically. And so if there's a risk of aspiration prior to anesthesia, you may want to give some regulant preoperatively to try to empty out anything that may be still hanging around there. But you have to remember, it takes a while to work. So you must minimally give it 30 to 60 minutes prior to your induction. So contraindications are any known hypersensitivities, mechanical GI obstruction, perforation, hemorrhage, pheochromocytoma, or any other catecholamine-releasing issues, seizure disorders, tardive dyskinesia, or use with other meds that can increase extrapyramidal reactions, such as MAOIs, already giving Haldol, tricyclic antidepressants, precautions, or look for the side effects such as tardive dyskinesia, which could be permanent. There's no known treatment, uh, so it's recommended to use less than 12 weeks. But what you should watch out that the patient may have some CNS depression or just generalized depression, some extrapyramidal symptoms, hyperprolactinemia, hypertension, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, prorhythmic effects such as sinus arrest, QT prolongation, so be careful with patients with heart failure, renal impairment, and it can exacerbate the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. So it's really important that if someone has Parkinson's disease, you do not give Reglin. Also, be careful with surgical anastomosis closure, so prokinetic can cause pressure on the suture lines because you're stimulating the gut. So pregnancy, it does cross the placenta. It is in breast milk, but it's been used as a second-line antiemetic in pregnant women and as an aid to breastfeeding as it stimulates the uh, milk production, duration of breastfeeding in, in infants for weight gain. Uh, anything else you can think of, John, for Reglan? No, I think you hit it, man. Uh, you know, interestingly, you know, similar to Haldol, obviously it works different, but it's got a lot of... Um, precautions and side effects to be aware of. You know, I can't, I can't mm-hmm. say that I give uh, metoclopramide very often. Yeah. It's, you know, it's one of those things that uh, it's in the top drawer of our anesthesia carts, but, you know, because it's onset time is, is, you know, the peak effect is a little slow that typically it's recommended you give 30 to 60 minutes prior to induction. Most times for emergency cases where I'm thinking RSI anyway, uh, we may or may not have 30 to 60 minutes to wait before we need to go to the OR. So trauma cases, emergency yeah. add-on cases, um, you know, we just don't have the opportunity to get metoclopramide in terms of reducing the risk of aspiration. Now, I have done clinical sites as an SRNA where this is just part of the pre-op package. If you're coming in for any kind of general anesthesia you're getting metoclopramide, which is interesting because it is definitely not without risk. So something to think about. Yeah. Lots of side effects. Yeah. Next drug. All right. So we've got Ketorolac or Toradol, which is interesting. It's the only non-opioid analgesic. I guess you could you could hint at dexamethasone that we talked about, but in terms of uh, direct acting analgesic, this is the, the only non-opioid that we're going to talk about. It is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, which reversibly inhibits cyclooxygenase 1 and 2, so COX-1 and COX-2, 
enzymes. Uh, and so that reduces the formation of prostaglandin precursors. It also has an antipyretic, analgesic, and anti-inflammatory property to it. The adult dose is 30 milligrams. This dose should be reduced to 15 milligrams in renal impairment or if a patient is less than 50 kilograms. Think about the fact that you also reduce the dose for pediatrics uh, with folks that are less than 50 kilograms. It kind of makes sense. For little people, you reduce the dose. So for pediatrics, it is 0.5 milligrams per kilogram up to 15 milligrams is what's typically given. The pharmacodynamics and kinetics include an onset time of 30 minutes and a peak effect of two to three hours. So there is a little bit of a delayed onset time. Um, it's a very effective analgesic, but keep that in mind in terms of when you're giving it. Duration of action is four to six hours. Half-life is two to nine hours. Metabolism and excretion includes hepatic metabolism and renal excretion. The indication is, of course, treatment of pain, and we did do a little sidetrack into its off-label use as part of AOK therapy, which was atropine, ondansetron, and ketorolac for amniotic fluid embolus. And I think at some point, we'll just have to do a whole podcast on that alone. I think that mm -hmm. uh, AOK therapy probably, probably warrants a deep dive into the physiology of that, so stay tuned for that at some point. But um, Yeah, especially since it's so new. I think I think so. So yeah. contraindications of Ketorlac uh, include, of course, hypersensitivity, and then most of the rest of them deal with the risk of bleeding. So to run through the list, it's recent or history of peptic ulcer disease, GI bleed or perforation, any kind of bleeding disorder or hemorrhagic diathesis, as some people would say, coronary artery bypass surgery, advanced renal disease, cerebral hemorrhage, labor and delivery. Ketorlac is contraindicated for intrathecal and epidural administration due to the fact that it has alcohol in the solution. And then aspirin-sensitive asthmatics. Uh, so folks that are asthmatics and their asthma is triggered by aspirin, we would avoid Ketorlac as well. Uh, there's a risk of bronchospasm with that. Precautions and side effects. Avoid in the elderly. Usually folks stop using this with patients older than 65 years old. And that's due to the risk of a GI bleed or peptic ulcer disease uh, or acute kidney injury in the elderly. Pregnancy risk factor C, there's a U.S. boxed warning that it is contraindicated in labor and delivery. It may inhibit uterine contractions, which of course can dramatically increase the risk of bleeding in a laboring patient or a patient going for C-section. And then it also adversely affects fetal circulation. So do not use Ketorolac in labor and delivery. It does cross the placenta and is present in breast milk. Notes and considerations. I think Toradol has a, has a very firm place as part of a multimodal analgesia or opioid-free anesthesia plan. There's very mm -hmm. interesting emerging evidence that shows that, you know, one-time dose of 30 milligrams or even, even a dose half that at 15 milligrams uh, does not put patients as high of risk of bleeding as we commonly assume. So some people are giving this in surgeries where the surgeon classically or, or surgeons in that discipline classically may have been concerned about bleeding. I know there's been some studies on the IV version of ibuprofen, which is a similar mm -hmm. class of Ketorolac that have shown no increased risk of bleeding. So I think that... Um, you know, Ketorlac, again, with the push to try to minimize or eliminate opioids from our care, Ketorlac will continue to see 
a growing place in anesthesia care, and it's a drug that we should all be familiar with. So, all right, well, shifting gears, um, we've got three more medications to do on the top drawer rundown, and they are all related to uh, OB anesthesia. So if you will never do another C-section or see a laboring patient in your life, uh, your top drawer rundown is done. Although with the advent of NBCRNA's CPC assessment, maybe you want to tune into the last three medications so you get these dialed in. But uh, to start us off, Michael, you want to start with oxytocin? Yeah, oxytocin. Definitely, if you're doing C-sections, I don't see a reason why you will never not give it. So oxytocin, uh, trade name is Pitocin. Uh, it's a synthetic hormone, uh, but it's also naturally found in our bodies. It's just synthetically made. Method of action is that it binds to the oxytocin receptors, which makes sense. Dosing-wise, for adults, one ML vial has 10 units in it. And usually, this is not set in stone, but usually what they do or what providers do is they put 20 units in a liter bag of normal saline or LR. And the rate of infusion does vary by facility, but usually the first bag is wide open and the second bag runs slower. For peds, it's not given. Um, For onset-wise, it's immediate, but it peaks in 20 minutes. Duration-wise, it's about 20 minutes to an hour. And so why would we give Pitocin? What are the reasons? Uh, Anesthesia-wise, we give it for mainly one reason, and that's to prevent bleeding postoperatively after a delivery from a C-section. And so with that contraction of the uterus, you'll prevent bleeding that could really turn into true hemorrhagic shock. And for non-anesthetic reasons, they would use it as to help improve uterine contraction if the mother is planning to do a vaginal delivery. So contraindications, it's only with known hypersensitivities to the drugs. If there's complications with the pregnancy, such as significant cephalopelvic disproportion, fetal distress where the delivery is not imminent, prematurity, placenta previa, or past uterine sepsis or traumatic delivery, you should be careful using oxytocin or, as we call it, PIT in the uh, anesthesia world. You want to understand that it's going to contract the uterus, and anything that stimulates that could lead to results that you're not looking for. So precautions, it is a vasoconstrictor. And it can actually cause your vasoactive drugs to be more potent. So it may increase the presser effects, causing more of a sympathomimetic effect. And too much oxytocin with lots of fluid may cause fluid overloading that can lead to seizures, coma, or death. Uh, Anything else you can think of, John, for oxytocin? Yeah, I think your I think your points on uh, you know mixing oxytocin into into bags. You know, it's it's something to keep an eye on in terms of how much crystalloid that we're giving, but uh, it's it's given to probably almost any C-section patient that's going to go back, which is which is pretty interesting. Super helpful in uh, mm-hmm. in the case of a boggy uterus. Yeah. All right. Well, next up is uh, methyl organovine or methogen is the brand name for that. So this is also an urotonic medication, which means it causes contraction of the uterus. So Methogen attaches to oxytocin receptor of the smooth muscle of the uterus, causing increased tone, rate, and amplitude of contractions. So the dose of methogen, that's interesting. I think most of the time people give methogen IM. So the adult dose, IM dose is 0.2 milligrams every two to five hours. IV is 0.2 milligrams over one minute, and that's usually diluted in five mils of normal saline. So you take the concentration of 
0.2 milligrams per mil, and you dilute that down to five cc's and push that slowly over one minute. The onset for methogen is um, IV, it's immediate, and IM, as with most medications, it's uh, two to five minutes. Duration of action for IV administration is 45 minutes. And I think the reason why a lot of people give it IM is that you prolong the duration of action. So you get about three hours out of it if you give IM. And oftentimes, I think if people are giving it IM, you know, a very common place to give this is, of course, during a C-section. Most C-sections, I would say, in the United States are attempted to be given through spinal anesthesia. So usually you're looking at an intermuscular injection below the effect of your spinal anesthetic. So outside of the thigh, uh, your patient won't feel it. This is metabolized hepatically, but mostly through the bile. So indications are prevention and treatment of postpartum hemorrhage from uterine atony or subinvolution. Contraindications obviously include hypersensitivity or patients with toxemia or untreated hypocalcemia. Precautions and side effects would be to watch for severe hypertension. It can cause extreme hypertension, especially when used with other pressors. And we should avoid this with patients with renal or liver disease. And of course, because of its ability to cause severe hypertension, be very careful with patients that have cardiac disease. Other notes and considerations, you know, IV is, it's not routine again, because the risk of pushing it fast which may lead to hypertension or even a risk of a stroke or CVA. Or as we've already mentioned, uh, you get a longer duration of action if you give it IM, so up to three hours. Uh, yeah. Michael, anything you want to chime in there with methogen? Yeah, what I, what I find is that it's it, this is like your line of defense. So if your uterus is still boggy and you're giving Pitocin full blast or wide open, you know your, your second line of defense will likely be methogen, like you just talked about. And, um, and, and usually you, you don't know if the uterus is boggy or not. So it really is important to have uh, good communication with the surgeon to see how, uh, things are going with the closure or the delivery to, to know if everything is okay. And if you need to get more assistance from methogen or, um, or the next drug, which we're going to talk about is hemabate. Um, and that's, yeah, but you hit everything that is important. So definitely if, blood pressure is really high, be very careful. Yeah. I think just to tag on to that, you know, as you mentioned, communication with obstetric surgeons is so important when it comes to the tone of the uterus and, you know, the potential risk of maternal hemorrhage. So having that open communication is one of the things that, I mean, you know, w worldwide, uh, maternal hemorrhage is a very high risk factor for perioperative death and C-sections and delivery. Um, simple things like communicating, staying on top of blood counts and all that kind of stuff can be super helpful. So yeah, I just want to emphasize that and, and, and fully agree and promote uh, solid communication with OBs during the case. Yeah, definitely. And uh, our last drug in part three of the podcast is Carboprost. Trade name is Hemabate. It is a synthetic prostaglandin. And the method of action is that it stimulates smooth muscle and uterine contractions. Uh, for an adult dose, it's 250 mics IM every 15 to 90 minutes. The onset is not truly known, but it does peak in 15 to 60 minutes. Duration of action is about 24 hours. And it's excreted as a metabolite in the urine. So why would you give it? So like we said, this is a, almost like a third line of defense or another line of defense in preventing bleeding from a boggy or relaxed uterus, especially after delivery. 
Um, it's also commonly given as an abortion agent as well, outside of anesthesia. So contraindications is that it's uh, obviously known hypersensitivities. You want to avoid it in patients who have pelvic inflammatory disease, active cardiac, pulmonary, renal, or hepatic diseases. Uh, you have to be very careful with and uh, very careful to use this in patients with asthma because it is a synthetic prostaglandin and prostaglandin increases can cause uh, or induce an asthma attack. So if they have known asthma, you should be very careful giving hemabate. So for pregnancy risk factor, like I said before, it's actually used to induce abortion. So that's why it would be given during a pregnancy. And you always give this IM unless specifically told by the OB to give IV because it's very dangerous to give IV. Uh, anything else you can think of, John? No, I think that's great. I think uh, the times that um, I give methogen and hemabate, they're often at the suggestion of the OB because uh, they're they're looking at the blood, they're looking at the risk of bleeding, and they're usually trying to maintain open communication with the anesthesia team. So I love the way that you put these in terms of uh, you can consider them as a line of defense from oxytocin to methogen to hemabate. I think that's a great way to think about these. And uh, again, these are very important medications to think about when you're dealing with patients who are delivering and at risk for hemorrhage. So uh, I'm glad that we covered them here. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Well, Michael, I, th- I think that does it, man. I think we made it to the end of part three of the top drawer rundown. Yeah, that's great. That's, I'm glad we did it. I'm hoping that this definitely helps you in any way, whether you are an experienced clinician or you're just starting anesthesia school or maybe you're an ICU and you're just curious about what we use every day. But I think that maybe there's something you learned today and I hope that it provides for a future of more research. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm stoked that you joined us. Uh, I definitely appreciate your passion for pharmacology. And, you know, this is, uh, on one hand, it's a short skim of these medications. And on the other, it's a deep dive into the pharmacology. So I think that we, you know, these are the medications that anesthesia providers should be super familiar with. This is our armamentarium. These are the things that are literally in, in arm's reach away. And I think the more that we are familiar with these, the more that we understand the pharmacology the pharmacokinetics and dynamics, the pathophysiology that these medications are used to address and treat, then the more adept uh, anesthesia providers will be. And and I think that's what it comes down to. It's about creating a path towards excellence and kind of taking you know steps each day that we go to the OR to uh, work on developing expertise and doing a better job so that our patients get better care. And hopefully this is helpful to folks. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. All right. Well, Michael, thanks so much. And uh, thank you, John. Who kn- Appreciate it. Who, who knows what the next podcast series will be with Mr. Michael Mulnicek? <laughs> yeah, who knows? <laughs> All right, man. Thanks so no much. Problem. What's up, y'all? I hope you enjoyed the Top Drawer Rundown. If you did, will you do me a favor and email a link to your classmates or colleagues or drop a post on social media with the hashtag Anesthesia Guidebook? Word of mouth is the best way for folks to hear about Anesthesia Guidebook. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.